1: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.9, Alice, the Hessian Nightingale. that you all had a lovely time over Christmas and are having a happy new year. I had a good recharge and reset, and I'm back raring to go with this series. If you cast your minds back to the last episode, back in the halcyon days of 2018, you'll remember that we saw young Princess Alice having a happy and loving childhood, but then facing tremendous excitement and tragedy in her late teens. Her grandmother and beloved father died in quick succession leading her mother, Queen Victoria, to suffer a kind of mental collapse. But this was all in the midst of a personal high, as she fell in love with, and became betrothed to, Louis, an heir to the throne of the Grand Duchy of Hesse. Today, we will see Alice get married and move to Hesse, opening up a whole new period in her life where she would leave a huge, lasting impact on the lives of countless men and women in the Grand Duchy. But before we get going, I just wanted to give a little plug to the show's Patreon page. This podcast relies on listener support, and I am so grateful to all my contributors. If you would like to throw me a dollar or few a month to help out, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash theotherhalfpodcast. And finally, just a quick reminder that I'm going to be at PodCon in Seattle next weekend. If you're in the area and would like to meet up, then please do get in touch. My email is as ever the other podcast at gmail.com. And so, with all that, let's get going. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. These, to his memory, since he held them dear. Perchance as finding there unconsciously some image of himself. I dedicate, I dedicate, I consecrate with tears. A wedding day is supposed to be one of the most opulent, magnificent and happy days of one's life. A moment that's all about the bride and groom. Cast your mind back to the magnificence of Vicky's wedding to Fritz. That was the gold standard at the time yet Alice's elder sister had tied the knot in happier times. The words that I read to you just a few moments ago were written at Princess Alice's request by the poet laureate Alfred Lord Tennyson for Queen Victoria about Prince Albert. This was a wonderful and thoughtful gesture, but shows just how far her mind was away from her own wedding at this time. She had no room for herself, She could not visit dressmakers, test cakes, send out fancy invitations, or ruminate on flower arrangements. She could only worry about her mother. Alice's marriage preparations were taking place amidst the most profound mourning the British monarchy had ever endured. She was, in the words of historian Elizabeth Longford, getting married in a death chamber. Indeed, Queen Victoria's moroseness led her to say, on the eve of the wedding no less, that, quote, the angel of death still follows us. The big, well, kinder, day was the 1st of July 1862. The guests were few, the presents meagre, and the dress mournful. Even nature seemed determined to make the whole thing a bit of a downer, as it was grey and cloudy. Indeed, the only lift that British guests got was in their sense of superiority over the Hessians, whom one courtier described as quote, "very good-natured, but ugh, the most awful dresses." The ceremony took place not at a grand cathedral or palace chapel, but in the rather more humble, familial surroundings of Osborne House, Victorian Albert's holiday idyll on the Isle of Wight. Alice and her four bridesmaids, made up of her three younger sisters and her sister-in-law, were dressed in white. Everyone else wore black. Queen Victoria wrote that, quote, Alice was dressed before one o'clock, looking lovely in her bridal attire. She had no train, but the half-high dress with a deep flounce of honiton lace, a veil of the same, and a wreath of orange blossoms and myrtle. The time had come, and I, in my sad cap, as Beatrice calls it, most sad on such a day, went down with our four boys. It was a terrible moment for me. Victoria then describes the various seating arrangements, which I won't bore you with, and then goes on to talk about the ceremony itself. After another pause came the dear, dear bride on her uncle's arm, followed by the bridesmaids, a touching sight. The service then commenced, the archbishop performing it beautifully. Alice answered so distinctly, and was full of dignity and self-possession. Louis also answered very distinctly. I restrained my tears and had a great struggle all through, but remained calm. It all took just under an hour, after which there was lunch in a marquee in the garden, then everyone went home. The whole thing went rather under the radar. At around six that evening, Alice and Louis went off on a three-day honeymoon elsewhere on the island. On the way there, the train was cheered by a small crowd of spectators the first and only real sense of public joy that Alice had witnessed that day. Queen Victoria famously wrote to Vicky that it had been, quote, more a funeral than a wedding and described the prospect of Alice leaving as, quote, though a dagger is plunged into my bleeding, desolate heart. But equally, she wrote of her pride in her daughter and appreciation of everything that she had done for her. Quote, What I shall not forget is Alice herself, and how really beautiful she looked, so tall and graceful and her voice so sweet. Yet, there was a very distinct feeling, at least on the German side, that the Queen had rather ruined Alice's day and was imposing too much. Her mother-in-law wrote to her a little after the wedding that, I do so much sympathise with everything that you say about your grief for your beloved papa, but I don't want to go back to that day because I am so glad to think that you are away from all the sadness around you, and in quite different surroundings. If you are 25 or older, I would say nothing, but at 19, the strain and stress which you have been going through can have a very dangerous effect on you physically. Indeed, her mother-in-law, Princess Elizabeth, became almost a surrogate mother at this time, a very different relationship to the one that Vicky had with Augusta. The stresses and strains of the past year had taken a great toll on her. But while Victoria saw it as a necessary effect of the loss of Albert, she never truly appreciated her own part in making it worse. Elizabeth did, and for this and other reasons, the Queen was not well disposed to Elizabeth. She saw her as the one forcing Alice and Louis to leave her side and move to Germany, and Victoria struggled to conceive of a world in which her daughter wasn't about to look after her. Alice was engaging in quite the balancing act here, appearing to her mother to be mournful and sad, while in actual fact being excited about this new chapter opening up in her life, and, one supposes, rather glad to be leaving her mother and her grief behind. In this period, Victoria writes of worry for how sad her daughter looked, but was overwhelmed by waves of self-pity. Alice needed to get out of England, and that day came on the 8th of July. Like her sister, she departed on the royal yacht, Victoria and Albert, which set sail from Osborne to her new continental home. Victoria wrote of it, "'Alice, dear, excellent child, is an immense loss, for she has been a support, a comfort, which no one can sufficiently estimate. They are quietly really happy.' and Louis, dear boy, is so nice, and very sensible about Alice's health, and so unselfish, so affectionate towards me, so little playing the husband or taking possession of her. We all anxiously hope that she may not begin having a family so soon, and the doctors think it unlikely. After landing in Antwerp, Louis and Alice travelled far more discreetly than Vicky and Fritz had through the Low Countries and Germany, reaching Hesse on the 12th of July. They were greeted by great crowds and pouring rain as they made their entry into the city of Bingen. They then went on a kind of city-hopping tour, taking trains and steamers across the Grand Duchy. Everywhere they went, people clamoured to see their future ruler's new wife, the daughter of the Great Queen Victoria. At the final city before their destination, the Grand Duke, Grand Duchess and Louis's parents joined the party, and together they travelled to the capital city of Darmstadt. There, they received their greatest welcome yet, with the streets lined with soldiers and civilians of all ages. Alice's sister Helena, who had accompanied her on the journey, wrote, quote, Nothing could have been more enthusiastic than Alice's entry into Darmstadt was. The town was decorated, and there were triumphal arches and flags. There were bands. All the schoolchildren, 1,500, lined the streets, and girls were all dressed in white with flowers in their heads, and baskets with flowers, which they showered upon Alice. Alice had spent the last 18 months almost solely focused on her mother, and had spent almost her entire life in the UK. This meant that she was completely overwhelmed by this whole experience. She was grateful for the welcome, but didn't quite have the tools to cope with it. It was bewildering. Now, I gave you a quick history of Hesse in the last episode, but it was a little while ago, so I will quickly just remind you now of the salient points. It was a middlingly sized, middlingly powerful German state, and lay on the border of Austrian and Prussian influence. It was a conservative place run by unimaginative and entrenched elites, few of whom were thrilled by the prospect of having some uppity Englishwoman coming along and spreading her ideas about. They had seen what Vicky was up to in Berlin, how she had come to spread liberalism and British values. The Hessians were no woker than the Prussians and were keen to ensure that she kept her head down. One of Alice's new ladies, Christa Schenk, wrote perceptively that, quote, at first the princess was something quite new to the people of Darmstadt, something that they had never come across, something which was offensive to the old ingrained customs of royal personages. At these small royal courts, much importance was given to etiquette. The princess no longer considered this appropriate and tried to change this. Whoever saw her in the early morning in a short, simple costume, walking with the prince or one of the ladies in waiting through the streets, was astonished to see that this was a royal princess, because people had imagined that she would wear long, flowing dresses and a feather hat. Often she was not acknowledged because people didn't recognize her, and generally speaking, she aroused little interest. And while these entrenched ideas of what a princess should look like and should do would become a great frustration for Alice, she actually had no time for such games yet, as she was busy enough getting her affairs in order. First of all, she needed to sort out their home. They had been allocated a small house on her in-law's palace estate, and she felt that they were rather on top of Charles and Elizabeth. They could not receive guests without imposing on them, and she didn't feel that they had the independence that she craved. She wanted new digs, and sure enough, work began on a new home for them. But though she had been greeted coldly by the Hessian elites, and her home was small and inadequate, this didn't spoil Alice's Alice's newlywed bliss. Her letters at this time are full of proclamations of her unhappiness, of her love for Louis, of her delight in being a wife and a princess of a foreign land. In these first few weeks, she and Louis went on a tour of the Grand Duchy, visiting all the major cities, and there she basked in the adoration of the local Hessians. But, after only a few months, they were back in the UK for the winter, and would stay there for the next eight months. Gigi pulled Alice in two directions, between her new life and family and responsibilities, to her grieving mother. This was compounded by some exciting, at least to some, news she was pregnant. This news was the cause of much jubilation, but increased the force of that tug of war between her two lives. Louis's family wanted possession of the child. They wanted it born in Hesse, and for the godparents to be decided by then. They also weren't thrilled by the fact that Louis was spending so much time in England. As a future ruler of Hesse, he should be there, not in a foreign land. At the very least, he should be there to see the building of their new home. After one sternly worded letter from the in-laws to this effect, Alice became furious. She wrote to Louis that, quote, "Concerning godparents, one never decides them in advance; it brings bad luck. Besides, it is decided by the parents of the child alone. If I know the people of Darmstadt, they will think it not only understandable but quite natural that under present circumstances you should stay with me. Your mamma told me" that she and your papa would never have stayed apart at such a time. The only difference is that we are at my house instead of at yours, where we should be, but others are responsible for that, and it is unjust that we poor creatures should have to suffer for it. God knows that I don't want another separation from you, but if you think it absolutely necessary and important, I don't want to stand in your way. I shall wait until I hear from you before I answer this letter, and will give your mamma the same reasons as I have given you here. This letter is a great example of the kind of person that Alice was. She was forever frustrated when others behaved as though they knew best, when they presumed to make decisions on her behalf, acted in ways that didn't make sense. She was destined to forever rail against the patriarchal, political and social structures that surrounded her, and would continue to fight them all her life. Indeed, she suffered the same problem that Vicky did. She wanted to be respected for her intellect and abilities. The Hessians saw only a woman, and they were a different class to that of the men. But she wasn't afraid to stand up for herself, and they would find that out very quickly. Childbirth would have been a daunting prospect for Alice. Her mother had suffered greatly from her multitude of births, and the trauma suffered by Vicky in giving birth to Wilhelm was well known. It was a difficult labour, but on the 5th of April, 1863, she gave birth to a daughter at Windsor. I'll just give you a moment to guess her name. Do you think they were imaginative? Of course not. They called her Victoria. Indeed, she got the full gamut of parental names, as she was named Victoria, Alberta, Elizabeth, Matilda Marie. The sense of relief that all had gone well was palpable and if people were disappointed that it wasn't a boy, that was kept quiet. Mother, father and daughter stayed in England for a few more weeks, before returning to Darmstadt in May. There, they were finally able to move into their new residence at Kranichstein, just to the northeast of Darmstadt. Now a hunting lodge and museum, back then it was a charming old house, surrounded by a huge woodland park full of deer and boar. Alice seems to have been determined to raise her children as she had been, in a loving environment surrounded by play. For the first time since her grandmother had died, she was truly happy. Young Victoria was then quickly followed by Elizabeth, better known as Ella, in November 1864. This happiness was rather resented by her mother, as she was still in the throes of an orgy of grief. As she saw it, she and Alice had gone through a great trial together, and so for Alice to now be so happy, while she was still so depressed... Seemed like a betrayal. Indeed, she went so far as to call her daughter selfish. The rift between them came apparent in the oddest of places. For example, on the advice of Vicky, Alice elected to nurse Ella herself, and Victoria was utterly disgusted by this, calling it a, quote, animal practice. But this area, that of midwifery and nursing, was one that Alice had always found utterly fascinating. As a girl, she had been captivated by stories of Florence Nightingale and the nurses of the Crimean War. Now that she was in a position of influence, she was determined to make an impact. Unlike Vicky, who was never really able to build up a social circle in Berlin, Alice managed to do so in Darmstadt and managed to gather around her a group of people receptive to her ideas and who would be willing and able to carry them forward. As much as she resented it, she knew that she would not be able to effect real change on her own. But by working through others, she could be very effective. I mean, don't get me wrong, she was still facing a war of resistance from the Hessian elites, but it wasn't such an impenetrable barrier as it was for Vicky in Prussia. Along with gathering like-minded people to her social circle, she did the groundwork, visiting hospitals and talking to the people in charge. From this work, she recognised that there were three principal problems – that of awareness, material, and staff. She wrote in a letter that one Darmstadt hospital was quote, not good or well looked after. I want to be able to succeed, for the people have plenty of money but not the will. These hospitals that Alice was primarily interested in at this time were called lying-in hospitals. They were staffed by professional doctors and catered for poor women, but they were seen as kind of training schools where trainee physicians would gain experience in natal work before moving on to treating the upper crust. They were, in general, underfunded, dirty, and under-equipped. She outlined one of the principal problems that affected poor women in childbirth was the availability of linen, as, quote, the dirt and discomfort is very great in these classes. In 1864, she became the patron of the Heidenreich Institute, whose members supplied linen and other supplies to women in childbirth. She took this responsibility very seriously, as you can see from this story that she related to her mother, one that I really do think sums up what an interesting and badass woman she was. Quote, I will tell you of something I did the other day, but please tell no one, because not a soul but Louis and my ladies know of it here. I am the patroness of the Heidenreich Institute, to which you gave a handsome present in the beginning. The ladies who belong to it go to bring linen to poor, respectable women in childbed who claim their assistance. They bring them food and, in short, help them. All cases are reported to me. The other day, I went to one incognito with Christa Schenk in the old part of the town and the trouble we had to find the house. At length, through a dirty courtyard, up a dark ladder into one little room, where lay in one bed the poor woman and the baby. In the other room, four other children, the husband, two other beds and a stove. But it did not smell bad, nor was it dirty. I sent Krista down with the children, then with the husband, cooked something for the woman, arranged her bed a little, took her baby for her, bathed its eyes, for they were so bad, poor little thing, and did odds and ends for her. I went twice. The people did not know me, and was so nice, so good, and touchingly attached to each other. It did one's heart good to see such feelings in poverty. Think of that misery and discomfort. If one never sees any poverty, and always lives in that cold circle of court people, one's good feelings dry up. And I felt the want of going about and doing the little good that is in my power. I am sure you will understand this. I would hazard to say that no other princess in her position in Germany would have done this. To go mixing with the poorest of the poor, both in an official capacity and in disguise, and take a real interest in their plight. The idea of philanthropic rich people is rather ingrained now, and is not that unusual these days to see royals visiting the poor and destitute. But for the time, this was utterly exceptional. In another letter, she outlined her reasoning, Quote, I have read and studied a great deal about the human body, about children, their treatment, etc. It interests me immensely. Besides, it is always useful to know things, so that one is not perfectly ignorant of the reasons why doctors wish to do certain things and why not. In any moment of illness, before there is time for a doctor to come, one can be able to help oneself a little. Instead of finding it disgusting, It only fills me with admiration to see how wonderfully we are made. And this was not her only cause. Her experience of going into hospitals and people's homes opened her eyes to another issue, one that was especially taboo in the 19th century – mental illness. Back then, mentally ill patients were housed in large rural asylums, far away so as not to offend wealthy eyes. In one of these asylums, you could find all manner of people – from the dangerously insane to mildly ill to the eccentric to children who concerned or even just annoyed their parents. These institutions, while crude, were an improvement on what had been available before. In the past, mentally ill people would have been thrown on the streets, imprisoned or forced into workhouses. These asylums were staffed by professionals and had to conform to decent standards of cleanliness. That said, they were still considered no place for a princess. Alice took up this cause after attending a series of lectures that argued for an asylum to be built in Darmstadt and became converted to the cause. One can see here shades of Princess Diana. In the 1980s, Diana took up the cause of AIDS sufferers and dispelled many of the myths surrounding that disease. In doing so, Diana came up against and fought against many entrenched elites who disagreed with her, and so it was with Alice. Back then, mental illness was seen as a moral and spiritual problem, rather than a medical one, as Alice did. This brought her into conflict with many, most notably the man who had given those lectures that had so inspired her. But she was totally indomitable, and, like with the hospital, she gathered around to a group of like-minded people, including some powerful men, and sought to raise the necessary money. She donated 1,000 florins herself, and through a charity bazaar event that raised over 16,000. Bazaars were a new thing for Germany, something that Alice brought with her, and it was a massive success. She wrote of the event, there have been crowds, something quite unusual for the quiet inhabitants of this place. They have shown so much zeal and devotion that I am quite touched by it, as I am more or less a stranger to them. If Prince Albert had still been alive, he would have looked on with total admiration, because this is his philosophy perfectly in action. Identify the problem, discover its roots, attack it with intellectual rigour, and work tirelessly to achieve a solution. But Victoria never really understood Alice's fascination and dedication to the causes of mothers and the mentally ill. She lamented that, quote, stupid quarrel about that still more stupid nursing that had come between them. The relationship had been rather toxic for quite some time. During her last days in the UK, Victoria had depended and clung on to Alice as a support, and had come to see that support not as a kindness, but as her right. She was angry that Alice was focused on her own family and causes, and insufficiently concerned with her mother's grief. Victoria saw her as selfish, as having forgotten her roots. And then there came the problem of Princess Helena's marriage. Helena was Victoria's fifth child and third daughter, and had been forced to take on the job of her mother's carer after Alice had left for Germany. As with Alice, Victoria had come to emotionally depend on Helena, and so didn't want her to leave. She allowed her to get married, Victoria wasn't that selfish, but she wanted to find a husband for her daughter that would be willing to stay in England there would be no special mission for Helena. The man she had in mind was Christian of schleswig holstein Sodenburg alstenburg and about the only interesting about him is the length of his homeland title. Don't be fooled by it, though. He was a not-particularly-interesting, relatively-impoverished, and a dynastically-unimportant non-entity who was a decade and a half older than the teenage Helena. I hate to be harsh, but there it is. Indeed, that was the point. He had no land, no title and no ties, which meant that he could stay in the UK and so Helena could stay by Victoria's side. This choice caused a tremendous breach in the royal family, with Victoria on one side and Bertie and Alice on the other. There were two principal objections that Alice had to the match. The first was political Now I'm sure you all remember in detail the controversy over Schleswig-Holstein from the Vicky series, right? Oh, okay, so I better give you a quick summary. This was a disputed territory between Denmark and the German Confederation, and tensions within the duchy of Schleswig-Holstein had twice erupted into open war. The second of these conflicts pitted a Prussian-led German army against Denmark in 1864. This war had pitted Vicky's Prussian husband Fritz against the homeland of Bertie's wife, Alexandra, whose father was the King of Denmark. And so the conflict had already caused great family tension. It had also caused great problems for Vicky back in Prussia, as she was seen as having divided loyalties for that very reason. Christian had fought on the German side of the Schleswig-Holstein War, and so was seen by Alexandra, the Princess of Wales, as essentially her enemy someone who had stolen by force a part of her homeland. Given her close relationship with her brother Bertie, Alice backed him and his wife up on this. She also feared that this may make life difficult for Vicky back in Prussia, but actually her elder sister was all for the marriage. She and Fritz were good friends with Christian, and so were excited to have him become part of the family. Alice's main objection, though, was not political she accused her mother of sacrificing Helena's happiness for that of her own. Helena was still a teenager, and yet she was being matched up with some old guy. It wasn't even as if this match brought Helena a rich title or some political benefit. He wasn't even a silver fox. Queen Victoria, who let's remember is actually in favour of the match, describes him as having bad teeth, a persistent cough, a bad smoking addiction, and persistent lethargy. In Alice's view, this was a marriage entirely designed around Victoria's selfishness and grief and nothing more. And it wasn't just them that opposed it. When the press got a hold of the news, there was a free-for-all. Most of it lurid lies. They called Christian a madman, a bigotist, with many bastards that Helena would have to adopt. Victoria reacted very badly indeed to Alice's opposition. She wrote to King Leopold that Alice, quote, "...cannot conceal her extreme dislike to her sister's settlement in England, which is mere jealousy, and pains me that she, to my very great sorrow, for she used to be such a comfort to me, is unamiable, and altogether not changed to her advantage, but the contrary in many ways, hard and grand, and wanted to have everything her own way. It is remarkable sometimes just how much Victoria did not know her daughter." Alice did not have a selfish bone in her body. She was just looking out for a sister and supporting her brother and his wife. But Victoria couldn't see that. She just saw an ungrateful daughter who had cruelly abandoned her wanted to take yet another daughter away from her. But, interestingly, there was a slight flaw in Alice's case. Helena was actually in favour of it. Alice took some persuading that this was really the case. But once Helena had convinced her that she really did want to marry Christian, and it was clear that Vicky was in favour as well, Alice was brought on board. But Bertie was not. He was standing lock, stock and barrel behind his wife, and was resolutely opposed. He went as far as to plan to boycott the wedding, and if he had gone through with it, he would have been extremely conspicuous by his absence, and not just because of his size. If Helena's brother, the heir to the throne, didn't turn up, it would mar the whole occasion. Victoria was the head of the family, but Bertie was the eldest man, and that carried some weight. And he was determined not to turn up. There was only one person that would be able to talk him round. His best friend, Alice. She knew him better than anyone, and knew which buttons to press to get him to change his mind. She wrote to him, Oh, darling Bertie, don't let you be the one who cannot sacrifice his own feelings for the welfare of mother and sister. Mamma knows and deeply regrets what you feel. She almost broke with Papa's only brother and all her other relations and friends for you and Alex, saying that never should political feelings stand between her and her son's happiness. Repress your feelings for a mother's sake, and let not political feelings towards Alex's relations stand between you and your own sister's happiness. Alice's efforts succeeded, and Bertie did attend, but a great deal of damage was done. Alice was profoundly hurt by the attacks that her mother had launched upon her, and Victoria continued to see Alice's stance on the whole thing as something of a betrayal. This damage caused scars that lasted for quite some time, and affected their relationship in a number of ways. For example, Alice was very worried that her mother was overindulging in her grief, that she was damaging her own health and endangering the monarchy through neglecting her duties. Victoria was working behind the scene, signing papers, reading reports, that sort of thing, but she wasn't appearing in public, even at great state occasions such as the opening of Parliament. Things got so bad that someone hung a for-sale sign outside Buckingham Palace due to the quote consequence of the occupant's declining business. Alice tried to reason with her. She advised her to quote, try and gather in the few bright things that you have remaining. You have the privilege in your exalted position of doing good and living for others. Forgive me darling Lamar if I speak so openly. But Victoria didn't forgive her. She wrote bitterly to many, including Vicky, about Alice's conduct, calling her some quite hurtful names. Indeed, rather embarrassingly, she accidentally sent one of those letters to Alice by mistake, forcing a rather humiliating climb-down. And then there was the issue of John Brown, Victoria's new favourite servant. He was the absolute caricature of the brash Scottish Highlander who organised the outdoor activities at Balmoral. He had managed to coax the Queen into taking outside trips, and from there began an extraordinary relationship between the two, but saw Brown being brought into the heart of the royal circle. He became something of her chaperone, and had her authority to order around not just her servants, but members of the royal family as well. As one might expect, this rather put people's nose out of joint. People started to gossip. They were spending an awfully long time alone together. Perhaps there was something more going on there. Was he replacing Prince Albert? The whole royal family urged her to dismiss Brown, Vicky even suggested circulating a petition, but Alice took all the blame again. When Alice broached it with her, Victoria reacted angrily, calling her vain and conceited" and quote, "dissatisfied and disagreeable." She complained of Alice's quote, "principles of mischief and intrigue," and went so far as to call her a "untruth teller" and quote, "a real devil in the family." She even got annoyed when other people liked her. When she was told the King of Prussia liked Alice, she scoffed that Alice, quote, has already too good an opinion of herself. It spoils her, and then she expects it elsewhere, which she cannot get. This is quite a shift in their relationship. Other than her father Albert, no one knew Queen Victoria as well as Alice. She and her mother had such an intimate relationship in those dreadful months between Victoria's mother's death, through Albert's decline and death, up to Alice's departure for Germany. Alice filled the vacuum left by her father, and begat a new position of Victoria's crux and vital companion. The Queen had let her leave, but she didn't expect Alice to, you know, leave. She expected her to be constantly in England. But that was not the daughter that she and Albert had brought up, and it certainly wasn't the woman that she had become. Their conflict never escalated into a war of words. Their letters are friendly, and Alice continued to send detailed and regular reports from Hesse. It was to third parties that their complaints and exasperations were directed. But Alice had to now put affairs back at home out of her mind, because tensions in the German Confederation were about to throw her homeland into crisis. Now, I talked a lot about the three wars of German unification in the series on Vicky. Well, the second of these, the Austro-Prussian war, was about to break out. If you recall, this was a two-month war between Prussia and her allies against Austria and hers, which included Hesse. Alice was deeply upset at the breakout of war. Like Vicky, she had been taught by Albert that Germany must be reunited peacefully that any war within the German Confederation was a civil war, and as Shakespeare once wrote, civil blood makes civil hands unclean. While this conflict pitted Alice's adopted homeland against Vicky's, Alice was absolutely unwavering in her support for the Hessians, especially as her husband Louis would be in the thick of the action. The two had been pretty much inseparable throughout their marriage so far, and this war would be the first time that Louis would serve on the front line she was beside herself with worry for her husband, who was made a major general in the Hessian army and was appointed to lead the cavalry. Quote, as long as he comes home safe again, that is all I shall think of. Please, God, spare me that fearful anxiety which weighs on me now already, for he, having only a brigade, could not keep out of danger. I put my trust wholly in the Almighty, who has watched over and blessed our life so richly thus far." So much, much more than I ever deserved or can deserve. Life is but a pilgrimage. A little more or a little less sorrow falls to one's lot. But the anticipation of evil is almost as great a suffering as the evil itself. And mine always was an anxious nature, so I cannot banish the thoughts which all the dreadful chances of war force upon one. Adding to all of this, Alice was pregnant for a third time. But, Instead of taking it easy, she went into a feverish power mode of writing and preparation. She wrote to Louis at least once a day, sometimes more, with both words of love and affection, but also advice on field hospitals. This was, after all, her area of expertise. Despite the fierce fighting, he was able to get back to Darmstadt to attend the birth of his third daughter, Irene, who you may remember would eventually grow up to marry Vicky's son, Henry. Henry. The war, of course, went disastrously for Austria, and Louis was involved in a major defeat at Aschaffenburg. Alice had read the tea leaves, and could see, earlier than most, that the position was hopeless for Austria. But the war went on nonetheless. In her constant letters, she begged Louis not to put himself at needless danger in the service of a hopeless cause, and then wrote angrily to him when she heard of his courage on the battlefield. But she wasn't just being pregnant or giving birth or anxiously writing letters. She was Princess Alice. She was always going to get stuck in. With her husband on the front line, she concentrated on the home front, raising money for military hospitals, conducting visits and inspections, making sure that everything was up to the proper standards. A true disciple of Florence Nightingale, she paid particular attention to things like sanitation, ventilation and clean water. When peace came, it was a bitter pill for Alice and the Hessians. The Grand Duchy was split in two, with the northern part absorbed into the new Prussian-dominated North German Confederation. The rest of Hesse remained independent, the smallest of the four independent German states other than Prussia and Austria, but it owed heavy war reparations to Prussia, and so was completely penniless. The war had therefore been a disaster for Hesse, but amidst all the turmoil, Alice divined some inspiration. She'd already become deeply involved in care for the mentally handicapped and women in childbirth, as I said before, but this wasn't enough for her. She had a far grander project in mind. She recognised that the work she had hitherto done were just sticking plasters. She wanted to get to work on the root causes and get help to those in great need. During the war, she had seen people providing help for the troops, but in private capacity with no central organisation. This meant that support was unevenly spread and haphazardly provided, with surpluses in one area, unable to replenish shortages in others. With that in mind, she founded the Alice Forenverein, or Princess Alice's Women's Guild, in June 1867. This was a national organisation, with branches all over Hesse, controlled by a coordinating committee, over which she presided, that comprised of seven women and four doctors. In wartime, its role was to provide nursing support for the troops. In peacetime, its role was to train nurses and send them out to where they were most needed. It worked alongside another society founded by Alice, the, and God help me with this pronunciation, the Alice Verein für Fraubildung an Erwerb, the Alice Association for Women's Education and Employment, or AVFE as I will, I can assure you, be calling it from now on. This was even more radical than the Women's Guild, as it promoted the rather radical notion of female education and female emancipation through employment. At a time in Hesse when the notion of women working for profit outside of the home was thought immoral, this was revolutionary stuff. Many of the nurses that worked in the Women's Guild hospitals were educated by the AVFE, and the first batch of trained nurses entered service by January 1868. The AVFE wasn't just concerned with training nurses. It had the far loftier goal of providing employment for women in all sorts of sectors. The first area it went into was needlework, specifically as a sales outlet. The association trained the women, sold their work, and gave them almost all the proceeds, deducting only a very small fee to keep the whole thing running. This provided a path to employment for a great many Hessian women. And it wasn't just the professional needleworkers that Alice wanted to help. Needlework had been seen for time immemorial as a female task, but they were historically offered very little training. They were likely taught by only a family member. Alice campaigned to have it added to the girls' curriculum at school. This may seem a small matter, but it meant that every girl, even from the poorest communities, could now make clothes and look after them. This meant that it wasn't necessary for a professional male tailor to come visit villages every once in a while and patch clothes at great expense. Now, women could do the job themselves. Again, these may seem like small steps, but they were in fact great strides in the cause of female emancipation and the road towards equality. And that's not all. The AVFE trained women to be able to hold down all sorts of educated jobs, including, for example, in the Central Statistics Office. But that all said, the training of nurses was their primary purpose. And in the next three years, the two societies set about their purpose. This initial cadre of trained women then became absolutely vital when the Franco-Prussian War broke out in 1870. This necessitated a massive ramping up of the production of trained nurses. Alice set about a recruitment drive that Lord Kitchener would have been proud of, using her blend of inspiration, empowerment and determination to drive the recruitment of scores of new nurses in hospitals across the duchy and in field hospitals with the army. Unlike during the Austro-Prussian war, where she was constantly on the move, now she had an organisation and a structure to work through, and so could remain at HQ and direct the nursing effort from Darmstadt. What they were doing was so well organised that they actually took over the running of the hospitals in the capital, including the main military hospital. Thanks to Alice's efforts, it was staffed by nurses, trained by the Women's Guild, and supported by British doctors. This hospital was renamed the Alice Hospital in 1871, and it is still there under that name in Darmstadt today. We talked about the Franco-Prussian war in the series on Vicky, but something I didn't touch on was how bloody the conflict was. We think of it today, if we do at all, as a fairly quick and decisive victory for the Prussians, but it came at a cost, The war saw over 180,000 lives lost and saw close to double that wounded. And that's not counting the hundreds of thousands of civilians caught up in the disaster that died of disease or were displaced. Hesse was better prepared than most for all of this, and this was all down to the work of Alice, the team of women that ran her various societies, and the hundreds of women they sent, not only into these hospitals, but also to troop trains, stations and boats, Anywhere where they were needed. They were largely seen without prejudice now against their gender, and this was all because Alice had normalized their presence. One final thing that she did that saved countless Hessian lives during the war was her drive to improve personal hygiene. This was a relatively new discovery in medicine that had come out of the work of Dr. Joseph Lister in England. Alice wanted Hessians essentially to make themselves cleaner and the most prominent way she did it was to persuade them to take more baths. This wasn't as simple as it sounds, as it would take a major upgrade to the drainage system. And, unsurprisingly, this sparked resistance from, well, pretty much everyone. At one meeting to promote the strategy, one delegate remarked angrily, quote, "'We do not want such ideas, your Royal Highness. "'It is a luxury if everyone can have a bath. "'I have never bathed in my life, yet I am clean.' These are newfangled English ideas. It was a long slog, and took all of Alice's power of persuasion, but this new hygiene plan was pushed through, and saw great improvements in the cleanliness of the people of Hesse. Okay, I have been wanging on about all of Alice's amazing work for quite a bit, but I'd like to talk about one more thing before we end today, and that is the Alice Lyceum. Most of her work to that point had been to help the poor and needy, but these weren't the only women in need of assistance. A problem that a lot of middle and upper class women found at the time was that they weren't offered an especially extensive education. While their male contemporaries could go off to university, their formal schooling would end while they were still quite young. To help feed their intelligent minds, Alice set up the Alice Lyceum, which taught courses in German and English literature art, history and the natural sciences. The Lyceum was very successful and ended up broadening its reach to less well-off women as well. It also branched out to open industrial, technical and teacher training schools as well to help women to learn a trade. She was a big supporter of the School Act of 1874 as well that saw Hessian girls able to learn trades at a younger age and, thanks to her influence, Darmstadt became known across Germany as a center for female education and training. In a letter to some nurses that had completed women's guild training, she wrote, quote, "You should be dedicated, friendly to the highest degree, discreet, always remembering your very difficult task, but not thinking of yourself. We must work together to reach a human goal, and neither of us can do without the other." I think this sums up her approach and philosophy incredibly well. She wasn't the only woman in Europe pushing these reforms and setting up these kinds of societies, but she was a pioneer in her own home, and pushed back against tremendous resistance to achieve her goals. Other than her children, these Alice societies, as they were known, are her most indelible legacy. And she had done all of this before she had turned 30, which is amazing. And it is there that we are going to finish off for today. Wow, that was a bit of a bumper episode, eh? Next time, we will see family matters throw Alice off her stride, as personal tragedy and marital strife ran roughshod with her health and emotional capability. We'll see her become Grand Duchess of Hesse and continue her amazing work, before further tragedies would cut the whole thing all too short.